0: Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block, and I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage.
1: We are so happy you're here.
2: I want to put I want to put my Hirschfelds behind me, but I'm in a kitchen. Oh,
1: I know!
0: <laughs> Isn't it gross? Sometimes it's obnoxious. I just gross I love my it. obnoxious. The audacity of myself in my own office grosses me out.
1: Today's guest is a very old and dear friend. The three of us performed in the Will Rogers Follies many, many moons ago. He started out in the business world selling tampons, and he ended up dancing on the Broadway stage. He performed in Thou Shalt Not and The Producers. He was always the tall tap dancing guy doing all the heavy lifting. Since then, he's hung up his tap shoes, and he founded the CGF Agency. To quote one of his clients, he is the best agent in New York City with the biggest heart, and the truest soul. Please welcome to the podcast, Michael Goddard. Michael Goddard to stage. Michael, to the stage, please.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me, ladies. (laughs) All of that is absolutely true. Uh, (laughs) You know, coming coming from a good conservative family, growing up knowing that uh, what a man is supposed to do when he grows up is goes to college, then you become some sort of a businessman and you create a world for your family and your life. And uh, if you want to do anything artistic, you do it on the side and you do it for fun. Mm-hmm. And so I, for the first, probably probably 21 years of my life thought I was going to become a successful businessman and be the greatest Harold Hill that community theater has ever seen. And that was what was going to happen.
1: And you had a military dad, right? So was he he pretty strict about what a man was and what you were supposed to do and the next steps. And you're the only boy in the family too, right?
2: No, there, I do have a brother. I'm the baby of five. I'm the baby of five. So I did watch all everyone grow up. It it was a military family. It was a Catholic family. It was a Republican family. It was a, a close knit, wonderful family. And, you know, I think that I don't think my parents ever put any limitations on me. I put them all on myself because that is just what I envisioned a grown up to be. That's what I always thought a responsible person would be. And I also, you know, grew up. In a group of friends where everyone was going to college and everyone was studying and I got a scholarship, so no one was saying, oh, how do you uh, get to be on Broadway? They were saying, so when you become the CEO of some company, what are you going to do next? And I would always be like, oh, I'm going to be a CEO. Who also likes to sing and dance
0: It's interesting when I learned That someone is the youngest of A lot of siblings, which I didn't know That about you, they are either um, Witnesses To their siblings or They take on the persona of Look at me, look at me, showman People pleaser, yes. I believe you're the latter Michael Goddard
2: <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's that's Not a difficult thing to figure out At all And, and it, was, it was the beautiful thing was that theater was the thing that brought me there. At my church, the coolest thing in the world was to be in the children's choir. Mm -hmm. You cannot be in the children's choir until you get your first communion. So I got my first communion and I could go and audition for the children's choir. And it was cool. And all the cool kids were there. And that was Mm -hmm. fun. And I went my first day and the choir director said, all the high school kids are doing a production of Music Man. And we need one little boy to play Winthrop, Peru. And he has to sing with a lisp. Will you sing for me? And I was like, okay. I'm auditioning to be in the choir. I guess I will. And so he taught me Gary, Indiana. And so at night, I would go and rehearse with all the high school kids. And when you're the eight-year-old with a bunch of high school kids in a theatrical setting and I was the baby of five already, I had now become the star. They all adored me. I got the attention. I got the spotlight. This is all I wanted to do then. I was like, can I do a show all the time? And my mother would start looking for, oh, you know, the community theater downtown's doing King and I. Oh, the community theater downtown's doing Tom Sawyer. Do you want to try to do this in between school? And I was like, sure.
0: Can I give you a quick Catholic pop quiz?
2: Yes. This is going
0: to be like, Catholic karaoke, ready? Oh my God! Uh (laughs) And I will raise you up on
2: eagle's eagle's wings. wings. There There you are. are.
1: Yes, okay, you are a Catholic.
2: (laughs) Yes. Wait,
1: I grew up Catholic. I have no idea what your people are talking about. Well, then you're not. Oh my God.
2: Are you, you just feeling the flames my, we, of
1: hell licking at your feet right oh, now? Oh, the here, flames really? of hell have been licking at my feet for a long, long time.
2: <laughs> the third pew in on the left side of the church where you'd wave and they're the Goddards. Oh, hello. They're the absents. Absolutely. Hi, we talk after church. Yeah, that was my I church.
0: Can, I can actually smell your church because I'm sure it smelled exactly <laughs> yes. like my church. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think I don't think of myself being brought up in the Catholic church or the Catholic faith, but I was brought up in the Catholic community, which was amazing, which was a place to go every Sunday. The family was always together. We all had jobs. Either I was an altar boy, my brother, my sister was. We were in the choir. My mother did the readings. She worked at the church office like we were a part of that community. That's
1: what you create in theater. You, you've you always been sort of the center of the theater community for me. You were like a mayor. You knew everyone. Yes. Everyone knew you. You truly were like the heart of that community for me. That's what you always represented.
2: I love the community that I, I that's all I've ever wanted to be, was part of this community. And each time. I realized that the family or the unit of that show was happening. I could I, I could embrace that and be a part of that. And we all know now that there are some that are just more magical than any others you could ever imagine and there's some turn into work but you still have that moment that three weeks, six weeks, six months, two years, whatever it is, each one of those unique experiences was special and continues to be.
0: You always make people feel included. And that feeling of inclusion and purpose, much to go back to what you were just speaking to on every Sunday, you know, your mom had a purpose, you had a purpose, you all came together mm-hmm. to make it happen. That's that's huge for people to feel like I'm meant to be here and I actually have something to do that's going to enhance whatever, the show, the day, the service, that's important.
1: And especially now after the pandemic, everybody just wants to be a part of something, be a, mm-hmm. be a part of something outside of their homes and their little tiny pod that they spent all this time with and they want to reconnect. Tell me how you transitioned. How did you end up leaving the tallest guy in, in the dancer line and becoming an agent? What What triggered it? What made you want to do it? What made you know
2: you could do it? you are actually one of the antagonists of the story Hmm. um you are what you are you are one of the subjects um so so after 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 turning into a businessman and graduating college and saying this is what I'm going to do and then I met actors doing a community theater show doing a showcase in Los Angeles and asking them what do you do and they said we're actors and I said oh I didn't know that's an option like They're like, yeah, we do anything we have to so that we can do this for a living. And that's then when I became an actor. And that's when I started auditioning, and getting shows and shows and shows. Um, But I had been a business major. I I graduated in marketing. I never studied theater. So I always went into every show that I auditioned for and every show that I got with a marketing mind. I was like, all right, your product, they're going to buy you. When you walk up to the audition and you check to see what's going on and you go, oh, yeah, this is not my show. Look who they're keeping. They're not keeping somebody like me. And it's not because I'm not talented or because I'm not what I think right and what I could do for the show. It's just like, oh, no, the look that they're going to create, the the vision that they have in their mind doesn't include you. So, yeah. Go have lunch. It's all good. Like you'll go to audition tomorrow, and when you know they need someone big and tall and strong, and and you know six foot four dancer who can lift a girl to above to his shoulders, they'll hire you. So I always I always thought of it in a business way. And as I was going to auditions, I would also look around and go, Oh, this is not right for me. But you know who it is right? It's right from my friend so and so. So I'm going to give them a call. On the payphone downstairs, since we didn't have cell phones, but I would run and give a call and say, "Look, there's an audition happening right now that I think you're really right for. If you could just get here, put your hair in a ponytail, put your heels on, I think you're really going to be right for this." Mm-hmm. And so my mind would always work in the how can I assist my friends and 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 oh I see that. This is a different brand, that this is a different way of looking at people. But Mary Lee, after we worked together and we moved to New York and you started auditioning, um, I would hear about a show and I'd say, Oh, Mary Lee, they're doing this show. The first gig you got after the show we did was Guys and Dolls. And you were the you know the lead of that.
1: Right, Sarah. The next,
2: some, the, the next something or other was happening. And I was like, oh, did your agent get you an audition for this? And you said, well, no. I said, what? Why not? This would be perfect for you. It's really funny and has to sing really well. You'd be really great for this. And I think you had said, like, well, I don't think my agent thinks I'm funny. They look at me like I'm the ingenue because I've done Betty Blake and I've done Sarah Brown. And this is now they want to groom me into this sort of young ingenue world. And I was like, well, that's just stupid. Because if I was your agent, I would see all the parts of you, or at least try to see all the parts of you. And then I could really try to encourage people to see you that way, because I know you to be that way. So, I started thinking at that moment, like, oh, well, if I was an agent, I would want to know as much about my clients as possible and try not to put anybody in a box. And, you know, this is all big fantasy about what a good agent would be, but it is something that has led me to continue doing that. Not that I could ever assume I know everything about my clients but I like to know the different parts of them because that helps after you get your first gig or after you get known for something I want to expand what casting directors think of you and I do that because I can start knowing my clients a little bit more intimately and a little bit more personally and I I can say oh there is more to them than what meets the eye
1: Boy I wish you had started your agency then because that was always a big struggle (laughs) for me. I think people never knew what to do with me because I was this brassy funny body belter. But I was also this ingenue, really sweet, soprano-y sounding, uh, leading lady-esque kind of thing. And people never knew where to put me. And and I never knew where to put myself. I think because I never studied theater either. I didn't have tons of experience when I got to New York. It was one of those things and my parents said the same thing. Like you do theater on the side. Theater is a community thing. I didn't know a lot going in. And I wish I had understood this is what makes me special. And this is where my my power
2: alley could lie. And it never gets easier because as going through these college programs for musical theater, many are graduating and in three or four years have decided all they want in their life is to be the next Stephanie J. Block. Oh. And I go to their showcases. No, it's true. And and they will sing two of your songs. And I'll be like, hey, you know what? Don't sing her songs if you can't sing them better. Because all I'm doing now is thinking of her. And I know that you're singing, get out and stay out with the power that you believe she taught you how to do by listening to that recording over and over and over again. But that's not what makes you unique. That's what makes her special. And so I can hear and I can tell when someone's just trying to imitate mm-hmm. who they look at as what they want to become. And that is an uninteresting performer. When you find somebody who performs whatever song, it could be a song I know really well, or it can be an original song and they do it and you look at them and you know, they're doing their version and it's authentic and it's real. Then they have moved higher up in any sort of like, they're already ready. I'm like, good, you get it. You get what makes you special. And it's, If I could teach people how to do that, I'd make a million dollars. I
0: always ask young performers when they're presenting a song, why did you have to sing this song? The, The catalog out there is, you know, hundreds of thousands of tunes. What made you have to voice these lyrics today in this moment. And if you can't come up with a real, not just a qualification as to why, but a really in-depth emotional connection to the song, then if I tell them, if you don't have something to say, sadly, we're not going to listen. We can hear your beautiful voice, but we will stop listening about the second or third staff down because you're just not connecting to it in a, in a way.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't necessarily expect someone to know this at 22. It helps them in their next steps the sooner they know this. But I've seen people figure this out at 28 or 30, and then their career really blossoms. And for them, it took them 10 years to figure out, oh, who the heck am I? So I have seen those people blossom amazingly as well. But as soon as you can figure that out and really celebrate it, the better.
0: And when did you find the clarity of who exactly you were? Or is the search still continuing? I,
2: I, I think that's always, for me, that's always continuing. I mean, performing-wise, I always just sort of put a certain brand on me. My goal at that point was to be a working actor. When I look at my clients and I encourage them who want to really establish something great with what they're doing, then I I, I want them to, to learn more about that quicker and sooner. I don't know if I personally do because that's, you know, that's the personal work we're all doing on the side, but uh, it's that's a hard thing.
0: Do you feel like you hire or take on a client by seeing not only their talent, but also by seeing their person? Are they equal? The, the level of humanity and the level of artistry?
2: Yeah, I think the talent gets us the interview. And the interview gets them representation. I can see the most talented person. I think it's just amazing. And if the interview is like, oh, they're trying to be someone else and they're not really comfortable in their own skin Uh and I will not feel comfortable introducing them to the head of ABC or the head, or Bernie Telsey or Tara Rubin, then we're not going to be a good team together. I know they're going to do great things because they have so much talent, but the identity and the ability to talk to me every day and talk about your fears and talk about your goals That is what makes me want to work with you.
1: Do you miss performing?
2: I miss half hour. Oh. Half hour is my favorite thing in the entire world. I miss walking into that stage door at half hour and going to the wardrobe uh, department and laughing and kicking with them and walking up to the women's dressing room and going in and sitting down and doing, you know, playing and being silly and someone screaming, Michael, it's 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, I got better hurt. You know, then stopping by over here and then running to get my clothes on and then and running down to stage with that three minutes of everyone catching up about everything that happened in the past 24 hours and getting into character and getting into that moment and then saying, okay, here it is. And the music starts, you go, all right. And the second that character come up, i would be like, oh, no, I'm good. This, that was what I wanted. That's what what I love. I don't necessarily need to kick and dance and do all that kind of stuff because I do that on a daily basis, just in a personal life, but uh, the the, the community, and, and that's why I'm so happy to still be in the community and still be such an active part of people's careers and their lives and and watching my friends succeed and in so many different ways and still being a part of it.
0: Being the extrovert that you are, right? And you're speaking to half hour and I love those moments too. Now, I would show up a little bit earlier and then my um, way of getting ready for a show is my door usually shuts at about half hour or 20 minutes, unless you share a room with Mary Lee Graffio or Mary Lee Fairbanks. Uh, that, That whole equation goes out the effing door. But with the proximity of social media all the time, right? And being connected to people and feel like you know what's going on in their day, do you feel like that? Has changed a little bit that you call it kikiing with each other, which we understand and we totally know what (laughs) that looks like and sounds like. And but that sort of excitement of reconnecting with the person when you walk into your rehearsal room or your theater, I feel like it's shifted a little bit because we all feel like we have tabs on each other during the course of the day through social Mm -hmm. media. I want you to answer to that point. And then also, the businessman, do you think actors? have to have the marketing tool of Twitter and Instagram and social media.
2: The first one is I left the business, like cell phones were just coming into the world, but there were no Instagrams. There were no Facebooks. It was just cell phones. So Still, when we got to dressing rooms, people put them down unless somehow they figure they needed to make a call real quick. So I never knew that was a thing until I forget what show it did. But the men's dressing room said, oh, well, you know, on Tuesdays, we all put our cell phone in the microphone envelopes at half hour and their room, their room decided on one day a week or whatever, they would all put their cell phones away. Mm. They said, because we, we sat around and no one was talking to each other and we wanted to create that magic of the dressing room and i was like oh that maybe is gone maybe yeah i've seen eight people in a room on their cell phones doing things how sad that it does so i heard that this one show i heard the one show put away their cell phones and i was like that's a brilliant show and that's a very smart group of guys or gals i forget what it was or people humans who decided yeah, we're going to we're going to take a break from this to be present in this moment to do the show. And as far as social media goes and, my, and actors needs, I don't think anyone needs to do social media. It's certainly a great tool. And I certainly want my clients who get to a certain level, especially in, you know, boom, you get a television show. That television show is going to say to you, we would love for you to live tweet when your TV show's on. So, you know, if the day that you learn what live tweeting is, is the day you have a television show and that's (laughs) your new life, it's a a tough thing to learn. But uh, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. I think that everyone to do social media, how it works for them. I don't want you to see so-and-so who's got 100,000 followers and is doing one a day, and is just that's the beauty filter and the whole thing. If that's not who you are, I don't want you to do it. If you are the person who I've, I've got a Twitter account, I feel strong about things I say, you know, I say be smart about it, understand what you're doing out there, understand that if you're trying to get a job with a business that's a corporation, they will go deep dive into all of your stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it end really, really badly. I've seen it. I've seen somebody get asked to test for a television show and they went back six months on Twitter and found something offensive. And everybody, the manager, and I, everyone had to do a 180 and trying to figure out ways that that person could apologize for that action. And that was also the moments of people saying, yes, but it's free speech, yes, but it's free, you know, it's my thoughts, you can't stop me from doing that. And I I say, no, that's very true. All of that is true, but I need you to also understand that this television network is owned by a corporation and that is a business. And if you're going to represent that business, then they have a right to look and and see and judge and do whatever with social media and and, and where the world is now and the conversations we're having and and things that are encouraged and asked from the Broadway community right now with with smart change that that we are advocating so passionately about. I have clients saying hey, when am I allowed to comment on this? Because I've now been DM'd for the past four days to say, what's your statement? And I really don't want to have a statement because this is not my fight, but now everyone's asked me for one. So what do do I do? What do I say? Who do I talk to? Not what am I allowed to say and when can I say it? But hey, I'm getting a lot of backlash. And so I feeling the need to do something. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused because I'm scared and I don't know what that something is right. because making that statement can get you into a lot of trouble or not a lot of trouble. And it, it's just like, I just want to do the best that I can do. And, and I want to be authentic and I want to tell them how I feel, but um, so it's a dangerous place. So I just say, do the authentic you version of your social media. And then if we have to enhance it, once you get more and more success, then we do. And if you want to make it just business, make it just business. You have seen Stephanie, definitely. And I know some of my clients have seen that when you let people in just a little bit into your life, you're like, well, how how far can I open this door? Because it's hard to close Once it's open at all, once people are already saying, well, what's baby doing now? And you're like, well, first off, none of your business, but secondly, Mm -hmm. I'll let you know when it is, or you share the birthday pictures because they're great, wonderful pictures.
0: I find that it is just a larger version or a larger scope of the stage door.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we all know that stage dooring is going to be a different world post-pandemic and Absolutely. new rules are going to come into, into effect and, and everything's going to change a bit. And there's something I was sad about because as a kid, I was the dude at the stage door just dreaming of watching Burnett Peters walk by me. And if she would sign my thing, even better. But if she didn't sign my thing, there was no one for me to tell that she's a horrible, horrible person and didn't sign my program mm-hmm. because... She walked past me and I was still very happy and things were great. So there's no judgment and, and I wasn't reporting anything good or bad. And now the requirement is if you do one, you better be there to do all hundred, 250 or 300 people because someone's going to say that you're a horrible person if you didn't. So, Yeah. yeah. My favorite new one is when the cast of Come From Away was coming to the theater because they were going to film Come From Away. The audience is waiting in line to get into the theater and the actors are coming into the theater and the audience, which was just standing in, in a line on the street, just started applauding. And every, and they, there was a connection there between cast and audience, but no one was going through like, oh, can I get a selfie with you before you run in and do the show for us? It was just a... Thank you for being here. We want to celebrate you. We're excited to celebrate this moment. And the more of those experiences, I think, that will hopefully be coming, the more, you know, curtain calls will come back to what they're there for.
1: So speaking of curtain calls, when did you decide that you were no longer going to dance and you were going to move into a new career? How did that happen?
2: I had done the national tour of the producers. I was in my mid-30s. I did it for two and a half years. I was the swing. I was like, I'm going to ride this out and cash this puppy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the coins. Things are great. I came back to New York at 37. I had money. I was like, well, I can be very specific about what I audition for next. I would only audition for things that I knew I was going to get, that I knew they would like me for. There was a production of Camelot happening at the North Carolina Theater with Debbie Boone as Guinevere. And I was like, well, if I audition for this, I'm gonna get it because everyone loves me in tights. I'm tall, dark, and handsome, I look <laughs> like a knight. I will, I'm, you know, I'm did a Lionel. I'm the one who dies, it's all good. And then I come back to life. But I got to the theater and I thought to myself, wow, I've got to have wear tights for the next three weeks. Ugh. And I realized, oh, you, this, that's the first time you ever walked into a theater and you thought to yourself, Oh boy, here comes the next three weeks. And that was like, okay. You're, this is it this is the beginning of your transition this is what's going to happen um i started letting people know like yeah i know I'm, i might be done pretty soon uh my best friend andre told his agent i had met her before i had called on the phone i had talked to her about being an agent she said well if you ever want to come be my assistant because that's how you start in this business and i said well thanks for the invite but i, I keep getting work so i don't need it right now but i'll call you when when i'm when i'm ready to actually transition because you can't be both at the same time so after a lot. I communicated with this agent and said, I think I'm going to be swapping and joining the agency world. And she says, terrific. Will you, will you be an intern starting tomorrow? And I was like, well, actually I just got booked doing damn Yankees.
0: <laughs> so I just booked myself damn- in a new musical. Yeah. Is that a conflict no. of interest? Not. not
2: that's not uh. so, <laughs> I had just auditioned for damn Yankees at arena stage. And I knew it was three months. And I knew I could go and do it, make some money, and then I could come and become an intern and at that point, not make money and still be okay. And I said, if you can wait for me, I will go do my last show. I will hang up my dancing shoes on my very last day. And the very next day I'll come work at your agency. And that's what I did. And throughout that entire experience, I was doing the show and my cast members were like, oh my God, are you auditioning for things? Like, what's happening next? What are you going to do next? How are you? Oh my God, Michael, this is such a stressful time. And I was like, oh no, I'm good. I'm actually going to retire. And I'm going to no longer do show business. And I'm going to learn how to become an agent starting tomorrow. And people like, no, but I mean... But you'll be back, right? Like you're not done. And I was like, no, no, actually yes. I've done everything I needed to do. I danced on Broadway, I did a national tour. I went to Europe. i I've, I've been on a cruise ship, I did regional theater. I, I did it. I did everything I needed to. And so now I'm transitioning because at 37, if I don't start career number two soon, it's going to get a little late. And so that was a specific day and it happened. And I went to my first day and I was there in the first week I picked up the phone. I was answering phones to the agency and Tara Rubin said, Hey, it's Tara Rubin. I was like, Hey, what's up? It's Michael Goddard. And she goes, "Goddard, what, what are you doing? And I was like, Oh, I crossed over to the dark side. I'm going to, I'm joining the agency world now. And she's like, what? And I was like, yeah. She goes, Oh, well then, could you set up these appointments for me? And I was like, absolutely. Let's get this done.
0: It was that it clean. Was very, there were no like, like, emotional it, apron strings or anything like that.
2: The one apron string happened probably three months into the internship when Strowman put out the breakdown for young Frankenstein mm. wanting tall tap dancing guys. And I thought to myself, oh, was uh, that my last one? Should I have waited for that one? And then I was already doing the agency thing and I went and saw the show and I was like, oh, no, actually that wasn't mine. Nope, I was I was on the right track. And I just kept doing it. I have felt that most people in the business, when they decide it's time to do something else, when they pivot to a new career, I expect and, and have seen great success for about 95% of all of those people, because those people have made a decision and they have such wonderful work ethics. You show up early, you show up usually at half hour, you always get yeah. your, done, your work done, you're rehearsed, you're ready to go, like you're not you don't bring this as much back is because you have been expected to know and do so much more prior to this moment. So for me, it was a clear move in 2006, which is 15 years ago. I started being a, an agent and was an actor for 16 years and now 15 years in the agency world. And I think to myself, I wonder if my acting nightmares, the anxiety and acting nightmares are going to stop anytime soon because I still have them. So I think that if if being an agent turns to be more years than being an actor, then I'll just have agent nightmares. But still to this day, I am in a dream and I don't know my blocking. I got to get to stage and it's for Susan Stroman. And I'm very concerned about what this is going to do. To this day, she's usually always the antagonist of my anxiety (laughs) dreams, which make people say, why is this happening? Michael, was she a horrible person? I was like, no, she's amazing. Like <laughs> in my career. I would do anything in the world for her. Therefore, even after my career, I still want to please. Her. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like Mama Hen to your little chickens with your,
2: your oh all the clients? time? Yeah. Which is why when they do do a new show with somebody that I know, if if I had somebody in share, which I did, there would probably some moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awesome! Do me a favor don't talk to Stephanie about me for at least six months because Stephanie knows stories about me for for 30, exactly. I say the same thing about Dennis Stowe. If someone of my clients goes to Aladdin, I'm like, don't talk to Dennis Stowe. He knows the real me. And I don't want you to know that yet. And so some of my younger, younger clients will also call me and be like, wait, wait, wait. So like you were like an actor. And I was like, yeah, we talked about this in in the interview. They're like, no, but like, people know you like, yeah, but let's, let's not think about that one. Cause I'm your agent now. So let's get back to work with the business. So it confuses people, but it's a, uh, it's fun. It's and fun. And nobody's to that listening, guy.
0: you know, so you can just tell Mary Lee and I, who's your favorite client. <laughs> really? No one's listening. It's okay.
2: <laughs> like all my children, I don't have a favorite.
0: No, no, except no. Every
2: day, <laughs> every day, the favorite is the one who I call and say, uh i need you to get this self-tape done in the next four hours and there's 16 pages to learn and they say okay here oh. we go. that's why you're my favorite and
1: now it's time for the five questions tell us something surprising about yourself that most people don't know
2: uh Oftentimes, <laughs> after work in the evenings, all I want to do is go home, not talk to anyone, and just like curl up on my couch and watch TV and not speak to people. Being the extrovert to- that I am, I don't think people know that that there are times when I really am just choosing silence.
1: Do you talk to Shane?
2: No, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes now.
0: The off button is universal. <laughs> no, no and,
2: off. and I love my husband with all my heart, but there are times when I walk into the apartment and if the lights are off, I go. Oh, that <laughs> he's not home yet and it's my time
0: uh michael goddard do you have a good luck charm or a ritual that you used to do when you're performing or that you still do it doesn't matter whether you're you know boarding a plane or about to do a performance or making a big deal for a client
2: the ritual for me was like going around and saying hello to everybody and uh doing one quick plie to warm up yeah no re- no real good luck just just touching base with the, the people that i was going to have experiences with that night I think was just connecting with them
1: okay if you could go back and talk to your teenage self what would you tell them
2: Uh, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do you can follow your heart and uh, it will lead you to where you're supposed to be
1: Seemed like that all along for you
2: Sure, but I think now if I could do, redo everything, even though I'm really happy about my marketing degree, I still I still dream of going to University of Michigan and studying musical theater. Um, I still I still wish that, you know, I hadn't really wasted two years in the track track team because I sucked. That was bad. <laughs> like I should have just realized just because my siblings are great at track, maybe that's not my sport,
1: yeah. you know, and not yeah.
2: needing to do all the extracurricular activities for my resume, but yeah. really fine tuning, finding the ones that you really, really love.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't regret
2: any of the things I did because it led me to who I am today. But there's some things I could have like not done without. Yeah, My aunt told me one day, if you hate basketball, just quit. Because the basketball coach grabbed me and said, please, if I can groom you for the next four years, you will be good someday. And I, I was never going to be good. I was going to be horrible. My sophomore year basketball team, I walked up to the coach during a game and was like, hey, look. I know I'm going to be on the bench all night. So at intermission, is it okay if I leave? Cause I have an audition. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point I should have realized that's not my sport. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> Don't waste your time.
0: Uh, next question. If you could have any ability, any talent, it could be supernatural. It could be whatever. What would it be?
2: Mm. There's some clients I wish I could sing. Like, Mm-hmm. And I and I made a career singing and dancing on stages. Um, I just know I wasn't as good as the people that I know and love and admire so much. If I could open my mouth and sing like Norm Lewis every day, oh. I would not speak. I would not speak another word.
1: Okay, last question: If you were a nail polish color, what color would you be, and what would the cheeky little name be?
2: Paint the town red. That's about it. Right. Yeah, and I believe it's I believe it's already I believe it's already a a yeah, paint so the- color and I do I I do believe there's been a July 4th where I've worn it. But um <laughs> but, but yes, I do believe paint the town red is just says it all.
0: We've never even spoken about the Fire Island follies. Yeah, we didn't I mean, even know. Is <laughs> that what it's called or did I just make that up? It's called something else. No, you else made yet. that
2: up. It's called the it's, Invasion.
0: Do you think we could retitle it The Fire Island Follies?
2: no because i think think there's probably the the cherry grove arts community probably has that as in their (laughs) in their community house the history the, the the beauty the the joy and when you say do you miss performing i go i don't have to because i get 90 seconds every year in front of thousands of people where i get to do something really crazy and stupid do
1: you have a drag queen name
2: Yes, of course. I have a drag queen name. And its I believe it's like your ASL name in sign language that it must be given to you by somebody in the community. Uh-huh. Um, so I was one, wand- I was walking past the pool show one day and Logan Hardcore was doing a drag show at the pool and I walked past and she goes, Oh, look, everybody, lady long legs. And <laughs> in that moment I was I was Lady Longlegs. One thing that's never going is my legs. They're good. They're really good legs. And it's
0: so much better than like number 12 (laughs) on the back of a jersey.
1: Lady Longlegs is way, (laughs) way better. Goddard, 12. You know what I mean? Instead, in the high school auditorium, instead of them hanging the the basketball shirt with the number 12 and they bring it up to the ceilings, they're going to bring glittery. Four inch heels, and they're going to hang them up. I I am not
2: an amateur. Six and a half inch heels, if there was anything. (laughs) You get the platform, and you got a higher heel. In drag, I'm seven foot two with hair and heels.
0: God, you're delish. Thank you. You are the best, Michael. I try. Thank you. All right. I love you, much. Thank you. You too.
1: And now, here's what struck a chord with us. So I loved talking to him. All I kept thinking was how special it is to know a person for this many years and watch them grow from kids, because basically we were just kids when we all met, into this really substantial, really quite powerful guy, but at his core, still the same guy.
0: Still the same guy. That's what I was going to say. I feel like the best people who I connect with, are those that I meet. And in the first five minutes, I go, oh, I see you. I I feel like I understand who you are. And then five days later, five months later, 25 years later, those five minutes are still the truth of the person. Right. And he's one of those people. And we're having this conversation. And he is, like you said, he's now an agent. He is in a position of power. He speaks with great understanding and um, expertise and experience. But that is the same man we met that long ago. And man, is that a comfortable place to be as a human and a friend to know that this is familiar ground to me with this person.
1: It's total authenticity. There's just not a pretentious bone in, in his body. He has no guile, you know, and I just love that about him. I would kill for his legs.
0: And when he discussed, you know, you can envision him in the tights and the shoes, and he's now over seven foot. People, these legs go on for a long time.
1: And his legs are all muscle. Oh. From oh, from ankle to ass. It's just a muscle. I can't stand it. But the other thing that you, you touched on that um, really has stayed with me, we were talking about the community that both of you guys found through the church. Mm-hmm. I yeah. honestly cannot relate to that. I mean, as a kid, I did go to church and did not have that, you know, Sunday potluck thing, didn't have a, a role within that community. It just wasn't really, a, it was almost like a duty. We went, mm-hmm. we checked the box. I didn't ever really get very much out of it. It was sort of fire and brimstoney. Um, the minute I didn't have to go, I stopped going. But there's also a part of me that craves community. I long for it. And I get very lonely when I don't have it in my life. Last night,
0: I was on another Zoom meeting where Gavin Creel was part of the evening. And he said something to me. He said, you know, I studied religion when I was in college and the word relegate from religion, relegate, the Latin definition is community, fellowship, Mm. to gather. Mm. And I thought that's what it was. Of course, at the, you know, the center, the discussion would become... God, Jesus, uh, Muhammad, you know, or about some sort of text, the Bible, the Mm -hmm. Quran, the Torah, Mm -hmm. but it really has always been, I feel very lucky and very blessed. And I think that's why I'm sitting here today as a woman of faith, because along with that faith came a place for me to belong, a place for me to be loved and a place for me to be uplifted. And that happened through the relegé of, of, church every Sunday. And I didn't know that about Michael. I think we had spoken about our um, Catholic backgrounds and giggled about it, but we've never like spoken in depth about his sort of rooting and and who he is now because of that faith and that gathering. And so, I was surprised, but not surprised because he does walk as a man who's got you know, a community around him. And that happens because of how he was raised and the community with which he was loved and raised.
1: Yeah. And he creates it. I mean, for me, he was the center of my New York community. It was his apartment I always went to. He knew everyone. It was always his gang and his parties. And he completely created that and welcomed everyone. Everyone felt as special as we feel. To right. him, And right. it's not phony. It's not that he's phony. He's just truly welcoming to everyone. And I think people are really missing the sense of community in their life. And it's really right. all that anybody wants is to right. be seen, right. to be a part of something, to feel that you're uh, secure and safe and loved inside of something. To speak very quickly again, I know throughout this
0: podcast, I'm going to mention Cher a lot because she really is this deep Font of um, belief systems and powerful affirmations. And one, she always said that when she performed, it felt as though it was her ministry. And I feel the same way about gathering people together to tell stories and theater. That is a relegate. That is a place where we all come together in a community and connect to open our minds and our hearts, to expand ideas. And it happens through storytelling. So again, Michael Goddard, his being raised in this community of faith, that just translated and evolved as the community of theater, but the essence of people gathering Mm -hmm. to want to be together and share in a similar experience, that is the same. And that is the ministry of live theater and art and singing together or the collective thinking, you know, as a
1: group when we gather. It's totally true. And it's transformative when you're in that space and it's cleansing renewing yes uniting that is theater for me i think that was also part huge part of the attraction for me but anyway i think michael goddard is a just a lovely human being and um and i'm really glad that he sat down and talked to us me too see you soon love you i love you too have a good one Bye. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Alison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast
0: members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.